Well, I think you'd agree that trust uh, is an incredibly important thing in, in any relationship that we have. Uh, in fact, I, I want to suggest that trust is the cornerstone of relationships. Uh, I would argue that trust is even more important than love. Um, you can love people that you're not in a relationship with, right? You can love strangers. Uh, you can even, sometimes it's very difficult, Jesus says to do it, love your enemy who you wouldn't trust as far as you could throw them. Uh, but trust creates a relationship. Uh, a business relationship starts when you trust someone with your money or when they trust you with theirs. Uh, a friendship begins when you start to trust someone with your life and your feelings. Uh, a marriage begins when you make vows and promises. I, I take you to be my wife or my you know, husband, to, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health, to love and to cherish. This is my solemn vow and promise, right? You're, you're making the promise and so it's all dependent on your trustworthiness. It only works because they believe you to be a person of your word and you believe them to be a person of their word. Trust is fundamental. Which is why breaking trust is so devastating because it's an attack on the relationship. And it's no wonder that people who've been let down, uh, who've trusted someone who's proved untrustworthy, particularly when they've been let down in a big way or let down repeatedly, find it very, very difficult to trust again. And trust not just that person, but but other people as well. It affects all their relationships and we say that they have trust issues. And I think it's particularly devastating in a church when there's been a breakdown of trust between the leaders and the people. Now, sometimes that breakdown of trust is deserved. Uh, when there's been grievous sins committed by the leader, it can take 30, 40, 50 years for the congregation to recover. I mean, I've, I've spoken with people in our congregation who've been in churches where that has happened and just the devastating effect long term. Not just can we trust that minister, but any leader kind of thing. Um, uh, if there's been false teaching or something, then well, how do we believe what anyone says? But other times trust can break down between Christian leaders and the church and it's totally undeserved. Uh, it can happen when you as the leader make decisions that well-connected people or long-standing members just disagree with. It can happen when there's gossip floating around uh, that's not necessarily based on truth. It can happen when people don't have all the information about difficult decisions that you have to make as a leader. Uh, some sensitive pastoral matters you have to be incredibly discreet about and you just can't defend yourself or talk about it, but you've still got to take the action. Um, and, and you may not be able to defend yourself because of the pastoral ramifications or sometimes because the police are involved or people are lawyering up or, or because of confidentiality arrangements or because it, talking about it will only make matters worse. Now, I say all this not because I'm about to make some startling revelation. <laughs> well, not about me anyway. Not, 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 not even about someone at church. I say it because the issue of 2 Corinthians, the issue of 2 Corinthians, is a crisis of trust. That's what this letter is about. It's about a crisis of trust. And not just a trust issue involving any old minister of the gospel. The Christians in Corinth were having trouble trusting the Apostle Paul. 
Things have occurred, people are talking and this church which was so carefully established by Paul which he devoted the best part of two years to longer than any other church that he planted. The church had witched, uh, witnessed his um, courageous stand in front of brutal opposition. The church had experienced his extraordinary concern for them uh, to be anchored in the truth and he's helped them work through very difficult pastoral matters. That church has begun to have serious misgivings about his trustworthiness. We heard about it last week and the mess they'd ended up in with the infighting which had started after Paul left and who's the best leader, the arguments they were having, the sex scandals that were happening in the church, the arrogance of some of the members and the sheer lack of concern that they had for each other and it was rather nasty stuff, not the church you'd want to belong to. But Paul had weighed in, he'd pulled rank, messengers had gone back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus where, where Paul had been. In fact, I've got a map here just to give us an idea uh, of uh, some of the things because there's a travel itinerary uh, and stuff. Let's see if we can get this up on the screen. Have I got it mirrored? Oh, here you go. We're going fancy. Uh, I can doodle. Uh, uh, hey, uh, look at that. There you go. So he'd been, in, he'd been over in Ephesus here. Uh, Corinth is over here in Greece uh, and he'd written 1 Corinthians from over in Ephesus. Um, uh, he'd written to tell them to pull their heads in uh, and, and to stop bickering with each other over all the issues and he particularly told them to kick the guy out who had been sleeping with his stepmother, right? And everyone knew about it and they're going, you know what, we're just, we're just cool with that. Uh, we're a really permissive church and we we just embrace anyone and and he gone kick the guy out like it's destroying him it's destroying everyone um what about poor dad you know um, and in that letter in chapter 16 of 1 corinthians paul had said he was going to come himself from ephesus on his way to evangelize macedonia so he was going to come across here on his way up there right okay He'd sent Timothy to them to see how they'd gone with his letter and then to report back and the report had come back that things were getting worse. So sometime around then, Paul did make an emergency visit to them. He'd flown from Ephesus to Corinth on an overnighter and it seems that it all blown up. It was a very painful visit, he describes it as. And Paul had gone back to Ephesus, so he just did this little kind of circular trip that wasn't the trip he had planned, which was going to be a longer stay. So then he'd sent Titus, his other friend and partner, to find out what was happening and to tell them he was now going to come and visit them properly twice. Once on his way to evangelise Macedonia and then again on his way back. So his new travel itinerary, and I'll do this in a different colour, was to go here, then here, then here. Alright, so I'm coming to see you for two stays. But then he changed his mind and he decided not to visit on his way but instead to go hang on, uh, overland to Troas and then round this way and then come down to them. All right, there you go, you get the issue. I was going to come twice. He decided then to go the other way around. Uh, and now he's up in Macedonia which is that area up there. 
kind of thing, the north of Greece. He's just met up with Titus again and he's heard the latest piece of bad news from Corinth. That some new Christians, some new teachers have arrived. They've shown up in the church. They've come with great pomp and ceremony. They've, uh, they've come with letters of recommendation from some other Christians that are out there. They're commanding huge speaking fees. They're really, really erudite and sophisticated and uh, they're really cool. You know, right? These are the guys everyone is lapping up. They're the latest hot thing right? in, in terms of preachers, if you can ever have a hot preacher. Anyway, well, of course, you have one anyway. <laughs> um, they call themselves the super apostles. Okay, well, yeah, that's a pretty good name, isn't it? You've got apostles and then you've got... Well, hey, the super apostles. And they're preaching a new sort of Christianity, a, a super gospel, something that's way more impressive than Paul's. They're saying, as we get on later in the letter, we're not looking at that today, they're saying that as Christians, you should have power, you should have victory in, in your life, and if you're suffering, it's because God's not on your side. And they're in Corinth now, they're knocking Paul because he's weak and pathetic, he's suffering, he's suffered a lot, so he obviously is not, God's not on his side. And worse, they're saying, Paul cannot be trusted. He's two-faced, he's insincere, he doesn't care. I mean, just look at the promise that he made to come here and visit you. Well, guess what? Paul's up in Macedonia. He's swanning around, living it up for all we know. He's running away. He lied to you. You can't trust him. And if you can't trust Paul, then you certainly can't trust his gospel either. You can't trust the man and you can't trust his message. And so this is a huge crisis of trust. And that's the situation Paul is addressing in this letter. And so the question for them and the question for us is, who can you trust? Who can you trust? And sometimes that's not easy to work out, is it? When things sound similar but slightly different, uh, who can you trust when people are claiming your allegiance, claiming to speak for God? Who can you trust when they're after your loyalty, when they want your trust in the midst of turmoil and controversy? I mean, we, we heard last week, and it's been going on for now for a little while, and just really reaching his head to kind of the, the, the giant rifts that are there in the Anglican communion in Australia and worldwide. Uh, in fact, uh, the Newcastle Diocese has just voted in same-sex marriage services as well uh, this week. Uh, and so it's on for young and old. Uh, the fractures are widening. And, but who's right? How do you work it out? Who can you trust? Do you trust me? Do you trust the Archbishop? Do you trust you know, what Newcastle? I mean, it doesn't matter. And Paul, in his situation, doesn't muck around. In fact, he gets straight to the heart of the terrible accusations that are against him. And so what is authentic Christian ministry? And how do you recognise it if, when you see it? And how do you recognise the wrong stuff? Well, first thing Paul does in our passage today is he lays his innocence on the line. He wants to show them his sincerity and his purity or his holiness as he describes it here. And you see that uh, at the start of our reading in chap uh, chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, For this is our boast. This is what we brag about. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in Corinth 
in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but we've done it according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you've understood us in part, you'll come to understand us fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. So here he's saying, this is our boast. This is what we glory in. This is what we brag about. We've been honourable in all our dealings with you. We haven't lied to you. We haven't deceived you to get ahead. We haven't manipulated you to get our way. We haven't just said the things that you wanted to hear that would just kind of smooth things over. Because uh, that's the way the world operates. That's the wisdom of the world. That's how the world gets ahead. Instead, what we've done is acted in accord with God's ways, in good faith and in holiness. And I reckon there's an important principle in that one little sort of couple of sentences there. He's really saying something vitally important for us. That is, it is perfectly right and proper to examine the life and conduct of Christian leaders. Right? He doesn't say, you've got no right to question me, just do what I say, I'm the apostle, just suck it up. He's not saying, I'm the authority and I can do what I like. I'm above the law and above your judgments. He's telling us right and proper to examine his conduct, just as it's right and proper to examine the conduct of any Christian leader and see how they live. Now, that's a huge lesson for us, whether we are currently leaders in our church. Uh, I mean, some of us are paid leaders in our church. There's a couple of us. Um, but there's plenty of other leaders. We have probably about 50 people in leadership of some capacity of others in our church in, in some recognised formal role. Uh, but you might one day become a leader, um, whether officially recognised or, or even the kind of Christian leadership that's mentoring uh, or even the kind of Christian leadership you gain by being a parent or by being a grandparent. There's Christian leadership involved in that that applies there as well. You, you cannot separate your life from your teaching. You cannot teach one thing and live the opposite. Your life and, your, and who you are will always be on show, as it should be. You can't hide it away. What you are in private matters. In fact, your message needs to shape who you are. You ought to be able to see the changes that God makes. Well, that immediately raises the question then, well, how come, Paul, if you're so sincere, if you're so trustworthy, how come you're a no-show? You said you were coming here, but then you went a totally different way and you're up there in Macedonia, you're living it up after you said you would be here with us. What's your answer to that, buddy? Well, his answer's in verse 15. Well, because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you. Um, he's, re, re telling, he's telling them their plan, the plan again. I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then I planned to come back to you from Macedonia and then you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do so lightly or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no. Um, he's, he's quite open about the fact that he's changed his mind. Yes, I did say I would come to you. And yes, I did plan to come twice. 
and you're right, I didn't do it. But you're wrong if you think it was a rash decision or I lied to you. You're you're wrong if you think I'm the kind of guy who flip-flops on everything, that I just say yes in one breath and no in the next breath. You know that kind of person. You you never can really trust them to follow through on their word. Ah, yeah, yeah, I'll come and help you out next weekend. Oh, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) He's saying, I'm not like that. I'm not like that, really. I'm not like that. Now, we'll come back to verses 18 to 22 later, which I think really are the heart of the passage, which explain why it's so important and why Paul is so adamant that he's not been unfaithful. And I think it really is the most precious and amazing statement. And, but before we look at it, why did his travel plans change? Well, he explains it. And, you know, you get his kind of itinerary. Um, and so come down to verse 23. I think he gives two reasons in the passage why he changed his plans. Uh, one major one and one that kind of happened on the way. Verse 23, the major reason. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. I actually thought it was going to be more helpful for you if I wasn't there. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? Yes, I did change my mind. But I did it because I love you so much, not because I was running away, not because I hate you, not because, you know, uh, you'd spotted my problems. I I care about our relationship. I did it so as not to hurt you. Um, Things have been so tense, they've been so painful, and I thought it was better if we all had a chance to just calm down, just take a breather. He's not avoiding conflict. He's not a conflict avoider like so many people are. This is just godly wisdom, right? Just letting things settle down, letting the emotions die down, right? I don't know if you've ever been in the kind of situation in the height of conflict and things are just out of hand and you realise if you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing that uh, your presence there is only going to cause more anger and frustration. Have been in a situation like that where you've just gone, this is not helping. And it's actually godly wisdom to pull back from those situations, And instead of being there, making the situations work, what he's done instead is go the long way and write to them instead out of his concern, just to kind of, all right, this is what's happening. And so verse 3, I wrote to you, uh, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You hear what he's saying? I, I do care. It wasn't easy. My, my tears are spilling on the parchment, even now as I write, just as they, they spilled on the parchment last time I wrote to you. I don't want to hurt you. I want us to share in the love and joy of gospel brotherhood, rejoicing together in the salvation that's ours and the eternity we're going to spend together. That, that's why I delayed. And then he gives a little bit more background as to the pain in their relationship and And there's a really specific reason for it. Why has it been so difficult? Well, verse 5, chapter 2. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for him. That is, at the heart of this whole breakdown of relationship is one person. 
right? In a church situation, and I mean, it can happen anywhere in a business or any other relationships, one angry person can fire everyone up, can't they? Right? You get that, whether they're a, a real leader or a social leader or just a, a, you know, an opinion shaper, and they've got their nose out of joint and they're, they're gunning for the minister or whoever it is or you know, the, the, other, the Sunday school teacher or whatever it is, uh, they can rally so many people around them that there is just so much outrage, but it's really all about one person. Uh, it happened at another church I've never been part I wasn't part of, but um, uh, the, um, the biggest contributor to the offertory at this church, uh, significant donor in the church budget, um, didn't like the youth minister, asked the minister, because his daughter, he had a daughter in it and she didn't like going to youth group. So he asked the minister to stand the assistant minister down. And uh, the minister said, no, it's just your daughter doesn't like youth group. Every other kid likes youth group. Um, well, this donor rallied everyone around. Uh, they all stopped giving and his contribution was so significant that it was the assistant minister's wage. So guess what happened in the end anyway? Right? The assistant minister lost his job because there was no money to pay him. Right? And they... The minister resigned. He just said, I can't, I can't live where there's just this dictation from, from one bully in the congregation. One person. And he's saying one person has caused all of this grief. Now, who is it? Don't know. Paul doesn't say. I think it could well be um, the guy who was caught in incest. Because he'd been going around telling everyone, there was a whole bunch of people who were proud of it, 1 Corinthians is a big section on it in 1 Corinthians 5, I personally think that, but it could be someone else who lost the plot during Paul's last visit and went nuts. Uh, whoever it was, at Paul's direction they had punished him, uh, it probably split the church doing it, and they had kicked him out of the congregation. And it was really painful. It was painful for them, it was painful for Paul, it was painful for the person involved. But it worked. There's now some level of repentance. Apologies have been made. And so Paul says now it's time to forgive. So verse 7. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan is in the business of tearing churches apart. Right? When you see division and dissension and disruption, you can be sure Satan is at work. That's not to say that He's at work in every member of the conflict. There may be someone who's right and someone who's wrong, but Satan is at work. That was a huge source of tension and part of the reason that Paul didn't come. He went instead to Troas and around overland, right? It was just too difficult. But there is a second issue that they weren't aware of and it sealed his decision. Verse 12. 
So I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. I figured I could do some good mission work on the way. And I found that the Lord had opened a door for me there. Great opportunity for the gospel in Troas. People were becoming Christians all over the place. Revival broke out. Yay! (laughs) But because he was so anxious about the Corinthians, because he really did care for them, verse 13, despite the revival that was happening and he was at the centre of it, he said, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Why was he so anxious to see his mate, Titus? So anxious that, you know, he'd give up on this whole city and region where people are falling over themselves to become Christians. Like, you know, has he got this codependent relationship? He just can't live without him? Um, is it that it, you know, Titus isn't a big enough boy to look after himself? What, what, what would make him give up this opportunity for the kingdom to go see Titus? Well, it's because he was so anxious to learn from Titus how things were going in Corinth that he gave up these great evangelistic opportunities <coughs> so that he might hurry on to Macedonia and find him there. <coughs> right? He's so worried about what's happening in this church, that actually, well, the gospel will go forward if the gospel's going forward. Other people can take up that work. I need to find out. I need to know if this church is blown up, you know, if it's still alive at all. Well, that's the start of Paul's defence. I've not been faithless. I've been faithful the whole time. Yes, I changed my mind, but I haven't abandoned you. And, and you needed time to stop and to reflect and calm down and, and grieve the way that I've grieved. And I needed to see Titus first and and see how you were before I turned up again in person. That's his argument. That's that's his defence. But there's the bit I skipped over, which, which I think is the heart of the passage, and I think it's the most amazing and precious part. Because in the, why does all this really matter? Why is it so important, so serious, that Paul needs to defend? Who cares, right, what, what his travel plans were? I mean, it happened 2,000 years ago. What does it matter? You know, which direction he went and how many times he got there or not. Why is it so important that God has handed this itinerary down to us as part of his word to us, to instruct us? I mean, all scripture is God-breathed and is there for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. How, how does this do it? Why does it matter if the Corinthians think Paul's been faithful? Why? Because it reflects on God. Why trust Paul? His answer is because God can be trusted. And Paul's behaviour has been consistent with God and consistent with the message he was sent by God to bring. And so come back to that weird little bit from 1.18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. A trustworthy message will come through a trustworthy messenger. And that's really the heart of the matter. It's absolutely central, God's faithfulness. Who can you trust? You can trust God. How do you know you can trust God? How can Paul be so emphatic that God can be trusted, that God is faithful? Well, verse 19, for the Son of God 
Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Friends, beloved, my brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is not God's Facebook maybe. God's not umming and ahhing. He's not wondering whether or not to do what he said. Ah, look at them today. Oh. They didn't put enough make makeup for church. Who could love them? You know, ah, you know, just don't feel like it. God's not wishy-washy. His word is not uncertain. And you can know it because in Jesus Christ, God's voice booms out through the universe declaring, yes, yes. That's how we can know God is faithful. Every promise he has ever made is yes in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I feel like, you know, it'd be great to be one of those American churches and like, Yes, preacher brother. Amen. Yeah, kind of thing. At eight o'clock, they started doing it from this point on. <laughs> I'm not encouraging you to necessarily, but is God there? Can you know Him? Yes, yes. in Christ Jesus. How can you know? You know can you know God will really accept you? Yes, in Jesus Christ. Want to know your sins really can be forgiven in Jesus Christ? God shouts, yes. <laughs> Want to know whether his promise of heaven and what's after this life, that there is something there and you can be part of it and it's glorious? Yes, in Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills every promise God has ever made. That's what God is like. He is absolutely trustworthy. Every promise is kept in Jesus. And Christians are those who know it. And so the end of verse 20, therefore the Amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. Amen. There you go. Amen. It, it's a Hebrew word uh, that we still use. Um, it means, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> Did that? I, th- I think that. Ha- and that's what she said when they got married. I think. <laughs> Do you take him? Oh yeah. <laughs> it means it's true. Uh, it is so. I declare it to be the case when someone's leading in prayer and and everyone else says, Amen, what you're saying is, we agree. That's what we want. We're praying for that. Yes, God, please bring that. Christians are people who recognize God's faithfulness in Jesus and with great joy, with relief, with unbridled gladness, say, Amen. It is so because God has promised and God is true. And because of that, we know God's with us now and we're sure of what is to come. And so verse 21, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God is with us. He's making us stand firm in Christ. He set his seal of ownership on us. The Holy Spirit on Paul, on the Corinthians, on all Christians, on you. As a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God has stamped you as his. So who can you trust? 
in this situation where the Corinthians are confused, where they're led astray by these self-proclaimed super-apostles who don't believe the gospel, who think they've got something better than God's enduring promises and faithfulness in Christ, where they're being tempted to believe lies, to abandon the true gospel of the lone saves, um, you know, being led astray by people who really are slick and impressive and who, you know, can really command the big bucks. Paul calls them back and he says, you can trust God. You can trust the God whose gospel I proclaim to you. You absolutely can. Every promise he has ever made is yes in Christ. Now, I do want to very briefly draw out some implications, just for very quickly, for us. Number one, trustworthiness. If you are a leader of any sort, whether in some formal role, whether you are paid or a volunteer, or whether you will be at some point, even as a parent, uh, or if you're weighing up who's right and who's wrong, in who's in leadership, trustworthiness matters. It matters for all God's people, but as any sort of minister of the gospel, it's part of the way people trust the faithfulness of God and his gospel. Trustworthy with people, trustworthy with the message. In fact, that faithfulness is way more important than anything else, than giftedness or decisions of when and where to serve, of impressiveness. You've got to be able to stand up to scrutiny if and when it comes. Now, that's one of the advantages of having smaller local churches rather than huge megachurches. I'm not against megachurches or anything like that, but it's just one of the advantages you have. You can do life with the, with the people, right? And you can see it close up. But anyway, but trustworthiness is, is vital in leadership. Second one, does it mean you can never change your mind? Right? Or do you have to do things because you said you were going to and even if you realise now it was a mistake or it was going to damage people that you, well, I've got to go through with it because I've got to be faithful. I think there will be times when you do make rash promises. We all do. Or when you make plans without all the information or circumstances change and there's just new things to consider, that it's okay to change your mind. Real faithfulness is about honouring the person you're being faithful to, right? In general, of course, faithfulness means you do what you say. But even more fundamentally, faithfulness is about your consistent love and concern for those you minister to, working for their best, even if they can't see it or feel it. If you do have to change your mind, don't do it because it'll make you feel better or make your life easier. Do it because it helps the people you're ministering to. Number three, forgiveness. Uh, uh, this kind of faithfulness is going to manifest itself in being able to forgive as well. Faithfulness means not holding grudges and resentments and forgiving, um, uh, forgiving and mending things, especially when there's been repentance. You've got to be able to let people and invite people to make a fresh start. And you've got to um, make every effort to 
um, bring the relationship closer together. Right? You've got to give op- people an opportunity to change. And you may well have to change as well. <laughs> and that can be very, very painful and very, very challenging. And can I say, it's not just churches who lose trust in their leaders. Many Christian leaders, not me, not now, <laughs> many Christian leaders lose trust in their congregations. Uh, or bio, or you know, a Bible study leader can lose trust in their group. Uh, and what's worse, they lose trust in God to be able to change those people and turn them around. Of course God can change hearts and lives. He regularly does. That's his business. He changed yours, didn't he? <laughs> so forgive. Fourth one, last one. Authentic Christian ministry. What is authentic Christian ministry? Today, authenticity regularly means things like being rough and ready, being ill-prepared, having your shirt untucked and just kind of getting out on the stage and, hey, I'm just going to talk as the Spirit leads me or whatever it might happen to be, letting everything hang out. Authentic Christian ministry often means, um, for people, dressing in a certain style, um, doing church a certain way. In fact, it often smacks of the very kind of manipulation that Paul is dead against, as we're going to go on and see. Truly authentic Christian ministry is faithful ministry. It's true to God. It's true to the message. uh, And it comes through someone who has a character of trustworthiness. Okay? Now, uh, it's loving, it's forgiving, it's considerate, and it sometimes even has to make hard decisions that hurt and grieve people. But it does it all for God's glory and for people's salvation for their repentance and faith, and it does it ultimately for their joy. Let me pray. Father, these are challenging words about our own character of faithfulness and trustworthiness. We pray that you'll make us trustworthy like the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your incredible promises, that you are above reproach, that you always do what you say, and that every promise you have ever made is yes in Christ. Father, we pray that that will refresh our hearts and give us confidence to love and serve you, but also will mould and change us that we might demonstrate your faithfulness in all our dealings. Father, we pray for those who are our leaders in Bible studies, in our groups, the kids leaders who are out there teaching now, uh, for the leaders in our national church and, and for other churches. We pray for Steve down at the Baptist Church and for Chris up at Minto and for Craig at Eaglevale. We pray, please, that you'd help them to be steadfast and true Uh, to the gospel message and in their lives, help them to be faithful in their families uh, and in their dealings with the congregation. And we pray that you will protect us from this kind of division and angst uh, that we see the Corinthians were going through. Father, help us to grow in love and peace, also in truth, uh, as we um, help each other uh, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen.